whenever you were raising your kids here in America, do you ever remind them that the life of the child of a serial entrepreneur was a bit different from yours growing up in the Caribbean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I had a lot of fun growing up in the Caribbean. <laughs> but it's, yeah, an entirely different experience now. Different for experience, yes. yeah. All your kids were born in the States? Yeah. Oh, they were born in the States, yes. And they must constantly remind themselves that their dad was, all he had was dirt growing up. So... It's Don't you forget asset. it, young man. It's still a great asset. You know? Yes. It grows a lot so, of cannabis, so for it... sure. I mean, you've got more alphabet letters than there is alphabet. Not oh, necessarily. <laughs> and I imagine that's, that's part of the challenge, right? I mean, you've got all this medical expertise. And it's your job to kind of translate that into revenue projections, and that can't be the easiest thing to do. Is that fair to say? Yeah, really. What we're trying to do is to convert it into helping people, and if you help enough people, you can make some money out of it. <laughs> there you go. That's <laughs> that should be the tagline right there. Atheos right. Pharma. We're going to help some people and make some money off it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so tell me, you grew up in Trinidad. I have a lot of friends from Trinidad who remember their youth in Trinidad very fondly. Is that fair to say from you? Oh, yeah. It was, it was a great time. You know, I had a lot of fun growing up there. I had brothers and sisters that we always competing with each other, helping each other, fighting with each other. I was right in the middle of their pack, three above and three below, six boys and one girl. And um, So you're fourth of seven. You're right there in the center. I'm, the I'm right here in the center, yes. Did you always have a strong appreciation for education? Is that something that your parents drilled into you? Because you've been educated over and over again over your life. No, my, my parents were high school dropouts. So I learned to read at a very early age, age three or so. So I read voraciously. And, you know, there was power issues. And so I read under candlelights and flashlights and lanterns, whatever I could find to read at night. What was interesting I thought about reading was you can learn so much within the context of one book. You can learn a life story in 110 pages, 120 pages, however long it is. You can learn the entire history of what was done. And I got voraciously interested in the West, for example, of the United States. I read every all the Westerns available, Zane Gray, <laughs> they all, all named that. But whatever I could find, I read. And that was my interest really in terms of being curious about things. How can I get things done? And, you know, for example, I, I told myself how to swim. And how did I teach myself how to swim? I found a book on swimming. <laughs> I followed the instructions from the book, how to learn to swim. And that's how I told myself how to swim. So you didn't just jump into the ocean and figure it out. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> you no, at no. least had a text that you had to help yeah. a little prep for it. Yeah. yeah. And I became a lifeguard. Saved a lot of lives on open ocean beaches in Trinidad. And it started off by a book, basically. And that's education. That's learning. Did you have a lot of resources there? Did If you wanted to solve a problem, did you find there was usually an available book that would at least get you started? There were good libraries. And of course, the internet didn't exist at that time. So you had to go to the library and figure out what it was. You know, you can lean on your parents and your siblings. You know, and I taught, and when my sons grew up, I was on an ice skater, but they learn how to ice skate mm-hmm. from watching TV, you know? So, so you can learn things by self-education. That's what I did. Yeah. That's a, it's a far cry from the, the Caribbean to New England. I'm sure that, uh, 
you know, the idea of, of ice in general is a, is a foreign subject when you, when you were growing up and now here you are teaching your kids how to put knives on their feet and run around in circles. No, no, I didn't. They told themselves. Gee, where did they get that from? <laughs> yeah. But I guess I'm, I'm getting a sense that I think you're the main theme of your early life was problem solving. You, did, you developed a desire to solve problems early on. You mentioned the power grid. And what was the biggest problem you solved as a kid that kind of cemented the idea that you were going to devote your life to problem solving? I graduated from high school quite early and it was fun, you know, to try to figure out how to go to the next step. And with limited resources, I was always interested in the ocean, being a lifeguard. So I bought a, a boat that I had to fix, a wooden boat. And I, had, I bought an engine also that it fell out from a, from a loading dock, bought it for like 40 bucks equivalent. And I had to fix it and get it to work. So in order to get it to steer, I had to get a, a steering wheel from a junkyard, which was uh, from an old car, and then utilize pulleys to connect to the engine to drive the boat. And we took that boat out in the far ocean very effectively. And that was a, a problem solving. This is a problem we've got to solve. How do we get it? Well, speaking of solving problems, that's kind of what we're here to talk about. That's kind of what the overall theme of this podcast is about. You're listening to episode 237 of the successfully funded podcast brought to you by KiwiTech, a growing ecosystem of entrepreneurs, investors, mentors, accelerators, incubators, and corporations. We help early and growth stage startups build viable products, drive traction, raise capital, and scale their businesses. We also have a disclaimer I'd like to read. It's in full on our website, which is successfullyfundedpodcast.com. But you need to know that Successfully Funded Podcast is not acting as a broker or dealer, as such terms are used in the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, or as an investment advisor, as such term is used in the Investment Advisors Act of 1940 and is not registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission in any such capacities. At no time does a successfully funded podcast provide investment advice, endorsement, analysis, or recommendations with respect to securities, structure security transactions, facilitate the execution of securities transactions, handle investor funds or securities, or otherwise engage in activities that would require registration with the SEC as a broker-dealer or investment advisor. So if you enjoyed that preamble, you can see the rest of our disclaimer, which is very important, again, on the podcast website, successfullyfundedpodcast.com. I'm your host, Doug French, and today, really uh, happy to introduce you to a man who has put together one impressive resume and one particular company that I want you to hear more about. He is the president, CEO, and founder of Afios Pharma which is leading the way in developing green, enabling biotechnology and nanotechnology drug delivery platforms and enhanced therapeutic products for health maintenance, disease prevention, and the treatment of certain cancers, infectious diseases, and central nervous system disorders such as Alzheimer's disease. Aphios, which means virus-free in Greek, which would give you a sense of where we're headed here in terms of how pointy this man's head is in the best way possible. It's developing FDA-approved cannabis-based drugs for pain, cancer pain, anxiety, opioid use disorder, and multiple sclerosis. So if you enjoy that mouthful of accomplishments, you're going to enjoy our guest, again, the founder, president, and CEO, Dr. Trevor Castor. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Doug. 
nice being here. And we're also, I'm honored here to have you on for your first ever podcast. This is, uh, this is a watershed moment, and I hope there are many more to come. Well, I look forward to your help in getting through this um, process. <laughs> well, you'll find that if I can pull it off, anybody can. All you have to do is just kind of speak as best you can, and I'll try to make you look eloquent in post. So that's, that's great. Uh, that's I like the that best last part. one. That's the best part. I like that one. So we were talking about Trinidad and we're talking about your family dynamic and how you were really involved with the West. You had an early interest in, in the United States. When did you finally get here? Well, I got here in the United States um, into New York, like most um, immigrants do, when I was about 19 years old. I came to study business at a small um, Jesuit school in Brooklyn, New York, called St. Mary's College. Absolutely. Sure. That was an alma mater, actually, of my high school in Trinidad called St. Mary's College. And so you, your first view of the States was Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. So what must that have been like as a culture shock coming from Trinidad? Very, very busy. Many, many people. <laughs> <laughs> it's like multiple. It's like, wow, people running around. Everybody's busy. A lot of trains. I lived in Queens. So I did a lot of and I worked in uh, Manhattan. So I was moving from Queens to Manhattan to Brooklyn and worked three jobs while I went to school. So it was a busy time. And it sounds like it didn't take much for you to adapt to the busy lifestyle. Or in fact, it sounds like you just saw the, all the activity and felt at home right away, given all that you've devoted your life to since you got here. Yeah, um, it was a good start. Um, and I did business um, in New York for two years and a bit, uh, not bored, but a bit not challenged as much. So I um, took a bus and went to Toronto and did my first degree in chemical engineering. I was looking for more challenges. It was a bit colder, yeah, but a little bit more challenged. I've missed going to Toronto since uh, the border was closed. Yep. And I, I got my love for ice hockey when I was in Toronto because that's yeah. all they played. I never played, but that's all they played in Toronto. What a great city, though, Toronto yeah. is. So chemical engineering was your first degree. Yes. And then how did your career proceed from that? Well, from chemical engineering in Toronto, it was too cold. So I went to Berkeley, California and did a master's in chemical engineering and a PhD in mechanical engineering. From there, came back to the East Coast into Cambridge, Mass to direct an energy company in terms of oil and gas development. I did that for about two years and uh, resigned early to start my first company, which is an oil and gas consulting company, um, working on enhanced oil recovery, better ways to remove oil and gas from deep resources. I did the energy company for about eight years. Mm -hmm. Now, I was always interested in, in entrepreneurship. That's why I started in business. I studied business uh, in St. Mary's College, and then when I came to Cambridge, I attended um, business school to do an extension program. Didn't do a degree, but just learned the coursework. One course I was taking the um, Harvard Business School was on finance. And the professor said, well, finance is a figment of people's imagination. <laughs> so I went up to him and I said, I want my money back. <laughs> it's a figment <laughs> yeah. of my imagination. So I, I quit that course right on that first day when he told me it's a figment of my imagination. <laughs> well, what do you think his point was when he said that? I mean, it's definitely... A an area of expertise you should have as an entrepreneur. You know? Yeah, but he was speaking to people who had great resources of money and money was a plaything. 
Yeah. Sort of, you have money and you can move it around and buy and sell stuff, and create other businesses. And I always say MBA is good, but MBA doesn't teach you how to start a business. It teaches mm-hmm. how to maintain money and how to maybe grow money, but it doesn't really give you the skill set or the knowledge set to start a business de novo. It has always seemed to be just kind of a hoop to go through. I think there's just, yeah. there are certain doors that open to you when you have MBA yeah. after your name, yeah. just because there's a certain echelon of yeah. role you could play. You know, you're not going to get to the C-suite without at least some level of master's uh, business training. Yeah. But you've clearly used that to your benefit here, especially as you moved on. I mean, how many businesses have you started? Three businesses. The bio-energy business, the biotechnology business, and then the pharmaceutical business at Afios Farm LLC. And that's what I'm really intrigued by because I'm, I was studied the flow of the businesses that you have created. And I mean, in many ways, there's a confluence of your skill set that comes to both a medical background, a business background, and, and now um, creating Afios and particularly working for these new cannabinoids which have found their moment in history. When did you first uh, discover or develop an interest in, in cannabis and uh, recognize its, uh, its healthful qualities? Well, I should go back to my roots in Trinidad. Okay. So when I started the biotech business, I said, okay, I'm going to work on biologics and enzymes and things like insulin. But I'm also going to spend about 10% of my time trying to figure out what grandma did. My grandmother basically took care of us when we were up. We were dirt poor. When I say dirt poor, that's all. Oh, biggest asset was dirt. <laughs> so, But you had plenty of it, so at least. <laughs> we, had, we had plenty of it. and um, You were dirt uh, rich while you were dirt poor. Right. And <laughs> we never went to a doctor, right? And if any of us got sick, grandma went into the yard and took some herbs and mixed it together and we got medicine. And if she wasn't sure of it, she gave it to the wild cats. And as you well know, in the, in the islands, you have a lot of wild cats. Mm. And if the wild cats survive, we got the, the medicine. If the wild cats died, we didn't. Good so grief. Basically, basically <laughs> she was doing preclinical development of her mixtures. So All I right. So you talked about the electricity grid in Trinidad <laughs> as a problem to solve. But good Lord. I mean, I think we've hit upon, we buried the lead here because- right. You had real health issues that you, you know, talk about a problem to solve. I mean, that's about as big a problem as you're going to find. So, yeah. So I started researching very early in my biotechnology career. What does nature have to offer? Why and how does it work? So Just plant-based therapies in, in plant, particular plant, or plant all based, of them? Plant-based yeah. therapies, um, microorganism-based therapies. Any, any from the ocean, you know, marine species, fish, mammals, sharks, any type of species that are available for natural life, because we're all part of the same ecosystem. Humans and plants coexist. We create carbon dioxide that plants need to survive. Plant creates oxygen that we need to survive. Mm. We have hemoglobin in our blood to transport materials. The plants has chlorophyll. It does the same thing. It's the same mechanism. And so that symbiosis uh, tells us that what we can get from plants can help humans. And so with cannabis, we all have a natural endocannabinoid system. We all have cannabis in our brains. Even the Republicans do. (laughs) 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 
And that's why we call it the endo, internal or inherent cannabinoid system. Mm. Plants have cannabis in them, and they've been around for thousands of years. Plants utilize the cannabis for certain function. We utilize the cannabis for certain function in our brains. It balances our, our psyche. It balances our serotonin receptors. It balances our natural well-being. And if, that, if there's an imbalance in it, the endocannabinoids get out of whack. And that's where cannabinoids can help to put them back into whack and help balance our health system. And so cannabis has been around for a very long time, but uh, it's only now just emerging from a period where it's been pretty roundly demonized and criminalized. And if you've been aware of cannabis as long as you have, were you kind of waiting for a time when people would come to realize that cannabis maybe wasn't as dangerous as people thought? I really started doing more research on cannabis when my boys were teenagers and they started to imbibe cannabis. So it was they were your my, test kitchen. <laughs> it was my curiosity, you know, why they're doing it and how it's going to affect them physically. Mm-hmm. So in about 2002, I started doing a lot of research on cannabis, got some funds from the National Institutes of Health to work on some cannabis research, um, did some research in California with some California companies and really started making cannabis products and investigating the manufacturing and the delivery of these products and how they impact the human's psyche and being. And what is the most uh, profound thing about cannabis that uh, most people might not be aware of, apart from the fact that we all have it in our brains? I mean, we may have already established that as the, uh, the bell ringer of a fact for, for today, but what else about cannabis might the average person not be aware of? We're still doing a lot of research. We really don't know all about it. Mm-hmm. We do know that cannabis consists of about 100 cannabinoids. Only one of the cannabinoids that an ITHC psychoactive, they all other have other activities like cannabis oil. They all have different aspects of the cannabis that can help individuals. So they can interact with our central and nervous peripheral systems to manage things like pain. And pain that comes from multiple sclerosis of aging or just um, injury. They can interact with our receptors, which what they call CB1 and CB2 receptors, which places where we can get addiction current. So they can be a displacement therapy for opioid use disorder. So the impactful part of it is it's like vitamin D. Vitamin D is an inherent requirement for our systems, both for both mental and bodily functions. We oh, yeah. Well, as we speaking get, as a veteran of 11 Michigan winters, I can definitely corroborate yeah. that for sure. And it comes from the sun. The sun, mm. is, which is part of our natural ecosystem, interacting with pre-cholesterol compounds in our skin and creating vitamin D in concentrations where we absolutely need it. So the key is that cannabinoids are needed what concentrations, how much, and which cannabinoid are still being explored and defined. If you take a, a tsunami of all these cannabinoids, it's difficult to untangle the impact or efficacy of a drug. And sometimes it's a, a yin-yang situation where one acts positively and the other ones act negatively to balance it off. So there are a lot of different components of cannabis. And what we're trying to do is to tease that apart So we can have components which affect the specific action in our body. And then we can define what dose we need, what concentrations we need to make it work. Going back to vitamin D, low amounts of vitamin D 
is not good. You can get a lot of autoimmune diseases and a lot of deficiencies and a lot of sickness, cancer, for example. Mm-hmm. High amounts of vitamin D you can, will kill you. You get hypercalcemia and a whole bunch of other stuff. It's the same thing with oxygen. If you have less than 20% oxygen, you'll die of oxygen starvation. If you have higher than 20% oxygen, you'll die of oxidative stress. Right. So it's in balance. It's like what Confucius says, everything in balance. And that's the key to it, is how do we put it into balance? And that's what we're trying to do with Alpheus Farm. And speaking about this particular crowdfunding effort, what do you think you spend more time doing, explaining the salutary effects of cannabis themselves or explaining this particular delivery system that you're emphasizing in terms of how this is better than what people are accustomed to? I think I tend to focus more on the delivery system because there's a lot of information in the web about cannabis. There's a lot of information in society about what cannabis is good for and what's bad for. So I think that a lot of the story of cannabis is available. What's not available is how do we tie to the delivery? How do we manage the delivery? Yeah, what is the problem with the delivery now that you're trying to fix? Most of the cannabinoids are very, what's called hydrophobic or Mm oil-like. So for example, if you chuggle a bottle of olive oil, it will ride through your body, right? Right. It's not going to stick around. Yeah, well, it's oil and water in general. It's oil and water. It's going to go through your body. And this is what happens with cannabis. It's oily. It will go right through your body. So, so you're trying to change its composition and therefore make it more easily absorbed by our bodies, which are mostly water? More sustainable, that it stays in the body longer. Let's suppose you are suffering from pain and you use cannabis to manage that pain. If the cannabis does not stay in your body very long, that pain will be back in 10, 15 minutes. Now, if you can keep the cannabis in the body longer to interact with the same pain receptors, then you can manage the pain for a longer period of time. So and what was what, the experimentation about? Like, because you saw the problem, you wanted to make yeah. the cannabis more absorbable, more efficient to stay in our bodies longer and, and have the more sustained effect. How did you go about discovering or developing this nanotechnology that achieves this? Currently, we do manufacturing of the cannabinoids themselves. And we use fluids such as carbon dioxide when compressed. We call them superfluids. We basically manage the properties of those to isolate the cannabinoids. Good part about that, most people are doing that currently in the marketplace, and that's, that's very environmentally sound. But we do the same when we do the nanoparticles. We take the same superfluids and we take phospholipids, which uh, the materials, you know, your cell, the mammalian cell is made up of phospholipids and cholesterol. So we do the same contextual material from a mammalian cell and put it into a superfluid and mix it with a cannabinoid, and then decompress them. So when they decompress, nanoparticles are formed where the phospholipids and cholesterol encapsulate the cannabinoid into nanoparticles. My job is so boring. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just, I'm very excited to hear you use all those polysyllabic words and and the whole idea of experimenting on this level is really exciting. Please continue. But But you know, you do have cell in your body, right? Sure. And those cell walls are made up of phospholipids and they're made up of cholesterol. So we use the same type of materials that you have into your cellular context to make nanoparticles to put the cannabinoids in cells. So when we put them into your body, they're in a cell-like structure. So they'll stay in your body longer. 
Do you have any data about how much longer um, the ballpark of, of how much more sustained the effect on your body is with these new technologies? The bioavailability of naked cannabinoid is about 6%. Our sustainability is to get it up to 50%, so about six to eight times more. Wow. What does that percentage mean? It means that it's called the bioavailability or the availability of the drug in the body or the therapeutic in the body is 50%. That means the half-life will be much longer and you'll have a longer period of therapeutic effect from the drug. And do you have any more granular ideas of what particularly these cannabinoids do to soothe pain? I mean, is it about nerve receptors? Is it about what particular biology of the body is affected when cannabinoids are soothing pain? Well, that's still an evolving question to be answered. But pain, for example, is evolutionary development for us to protect ourselves. So, for example, if you put a finger on a hot plate, you feel pain, but the pain is felt in your central nervous system. Is it transmitted from the nerves to the brain? And so that tells you not to touch that hot plate again. An amputee may have phantom pain because even though the leg that was amputated is no longer there, they can feel the pain in that leg because it comes from nerve endings that are part of the amputee. So the impact of cannabis is a lot of times on the receptors for that signal that is satisfied those receptors and therefore manages or ameliorates the impact of that sensation. Yeah, we, one of the great things about whenever I read about people studying the brain is learning how little we still know about it. I mean, you don't want to turn off a pain receptor, but it can train your brain to react in a certain way. Do you find that as well in your research or is this a question I should just edit out right away? <laughs> no, um, that's part of the reason when I said about the yin-yang situation where the Delta 9 T THC can have a psychotropic effect that right. will help elevate serotonins and therefore the feeling of sensations of pleasure. And then we get, we've, we veer into the idea of microdosing with psilocybin to help PTSD sufferers. Right. And that book, Michael Pollan's book, Changing Your Mind, was fascinating in terms of how you can actually train your brain to physically look differently. It's amazing how malleable your brain activity can be when in the right hands. So when you think about the medical terminology that you have to explain to potential investors or potential consumers, talk about CO2 extraction and chromatographic purification technologies. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a, that's a mouthful and a third. So how do you see your job as trying to make this uh, arcane medical jargon more accessible to those who are less familiar with it? Yeah, it's, it's a challenge. But, you know, the way it is, we look at it is, okay, you have one compound in thousands of compounds in the plant. How do you pull it out? So you can get it out by taking a solvent, which has a high affinity for that compound, and pulling it out. Sometimes when you pull that compound out, you'll pull other similar compounds. So when you do a CO2 extraction, you can get an affinity for cannabinoids in general, but you also pull other compounds up. Now you want to separate that specific cannabinoid from a mixture. So you look at affinity again, and then you do affinity against a solid matrix, which is chromatography. And you put all those compounds onto a solid matrix where the solid matrix will absorb that one compound and let the others pass through. And then you can recover your pure compound. And that's something that 
you have to explain why this is a viable technology that can scale and that can actually make inroads in a pharmaceutical industry that might not be the most accommodating to this effort. I mean, it's a, yeah. would that, is that safe to say it's a kind of a headwind in terms of trying to make inroads against that? Yeah, you know, and the conventional manufacturing processes in the pharmaceutical industry don't work well. Um, and we've been doing this for about three decades now. And what we have done is develop technologies which can reduce the number of manufacturing steps from, let's say, 25 to five. Wow. And when you do that, you simplify the go to manufacturing process and the manufacturing cost. And all of this is proprietary IP at this point? It's all patented technologies, yes. So yeah, that's the best part. You do have a sense that people are going to invest in something that you alone uh, have control over. When you talk about your, your revenue projections, I guess I'm thinking along the lines, you, you are riding a wave now where appreciation of cannabis is far more accepted. I mean, many states are legalizing it now. How do you see yourself helping consumers realize what the benefits are and making more inroads into the, the actual treatment phase? Our road, less traveled is a road to basically confirm what we're doing in research in the clinic. So we, we demonstrate the efficacy in clinical trials. And once you demonstrate the efficacy in clinical trials, defining efficacy is defining dosing and schedule of use. That allows the practitioners, physicians, to be, be able to medicate their patients mm -hmm. with particular disease or the particular concentrations. If you go back to traditional Chinese medicine or TCM, which has evolved over thousands of years, a lot of that evolved by trial and error, which was human clinical trials, but it was not rigorous clinical trials. It went from generation to generation. And eventually they figured out, well, this will work and this will not work. And the way they did it and why, why you have 20 herbs together is because they just kept adding different compounds. And what we're doing is we're trying to take away compounds so we have a reduced profile and therefore more effective profile. Does that explain? I think so. Yeah. Because what, I, what I'd love to hear more about is just how this technology becomes more popular. I mean, are you, do you have corporate partners? Do you have medical partners? There has to be a retail element here that has more people aware of what Afios's products and delivery systems can do and how these revenue projections come to be a reality. Well, our strategy is to take it up the pipe pipe um, flagpole where so you're uh, talking you're making a pipe joke with cannabis is that the point <laughs> no. <laughs> basically uh, we we have to we have to get into the commercial market and the way we get into the commercial market with the current infrastructure that is exist commercially is to license the product after we demonstrate clinical efficacy in phase 2b clinical trials yeah, I, I wish I could respond eloquently yeah. to that because, you know, I'm, I'm a lay person, my own self. I have a sense of how these trials go and how they develop acceptance right. and how new therapies become commonplace. And I think that's the goal in general. Just it's, it's all about just building awareness from a financial point of view, but also from a healthful point of view to just right. let more people know to keep the awareness going that these therapies exist and they're efficacious. As I said before, you can't make money without helping people. So our goal is to help a lot of people, then we can make a lot of money. But we have to do that in a structured way. And the way we do it is to develop a product which is proven efficacy, license that product to multinational pharmaceutical company. There are certain products that we will take to phase three ourselves, 
where we'll get FDA approval, and then we'll do a direct sales force to get it to consumers. Right. So I see there's a licensing element here of, yeah. of the proprietary IP. This is the kind of relationship that's going to multiply on itself once people see the, the benefits. I mean, you have this proprietary system, which is extraordinary, but do you have any uh, competitors in the market that investors should be aware of? Yeah, there, there are many competitors. And I, I, there are three tiers of competitors. The first tier are companies which directly compete with us and companies like GW Pharma, which just got your drug Epidiolex approved for unique cases of childhood epilepsy. And they were bought by Jazz Pharmaceuticals for $7.6 billion after they had approval in the clinic and from the clinical trials. Yeah, once you have that approval, that's a real attraction of an acquirer for sure. And then it's the second tier that utilizes synthetic cannabinoids like AbbVie and PAR pharmaceuticals, and they have marinol and dronabinol for uh, chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, and they're competitive. And there's a third set of competitors who are potential collaborators or acquire of our products and technologies. And there's are people like Merck and Biogen that basically have drugs for disease targets that we are targeted, like multiple sclerosis and anxiety and opioid use disorder and pain, cancer pain. So given the trajectory of the research so far and what you've already discovered about cannabis and its healing properties, again, this is just conjecture at this point, but you've been at this long enough, you've studied it for a long time, so you do have a bit of a long view as far as the role of cannabis in our culture and uh, what we've come to learn it can do. Where do you see cannabis going from here in terms of what else it could possibly do as a plant-based therapy? From the indications of cannabis, it can have a significant impact on cancer. Another unmet medical need is Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Cannabis could have an impact on that either by itself or coupled with other therapeutic agents. And I see that cannabis can also become more widely available by deregulation, and this will help foster more research and more inquiry into cannabis as a potential source of drugs. Now, I think the market is large enough for both medicinal use, recreational use, and pharmaceutical use. But I think that each component has its challenges, and it's, that's how the strategy I see going as a parallel development of bodies, markets, or uses. For example, a cancer patient who is suffering from so much pain that they don't want to take their cancer drugs, if they're treated properly with a cannabis-based medicine to help the pain, will can then take their cancer drugs to help their cancer. So there's a synergism in terms of how we work um, and we should work in the healthcare industry. I don't imagine you're going to have too many supply chain issues yeah. uh, in yeah, terms of, of different strains in particular. Do you think as cultivation of cannabis becomes more sophisticated, do you feel as though there could be strains that are developed specifically for their healthful properties and less for their psychotropic ones? Uh, that's currently done right now. So I think we're making a lot of progress in terms of developing the, the strains for specific uses amazing what the industry has da- done on the both recreational and medical marijuana field in terms of strain development. I think the key here is that um, cannabinoids are part of our inherent system, our psyche, our psychology, our physiology. And what we have to do is how to manage the interactions with cannabinoids with our system. And the case is what concentrations and what drugs do we use to make that work? And that's what we investigate. 
I see a parallel here with marijuana and podcasts, <laughs> just because people think they're a lot more prevalent than they actually are. And they, and there's, there's so much more to learn about it. And there's so much more uh, market penetration to be done by both. And uh, I've got to say, for your first podcast, Dr. Castor, you have been an uh, extraordinary guest, and I really appreciate uh, your time coming to talk to us today. Wait until I re-listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I, I, hope was, I hope I was able to respond to most of your questions. I think so. I mean, yeah. I hope I know enough to know that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Dr. Castor, this has been a terrific discussion about Afios and about cannabinoids and about the extraordinary way you've learned to deliver them and uh, and license them and and make the world a better place and you know make a few wallets fatter in the process so i really appreciate your time and i wish you the best of luck with this project so thanks for coming along thank you so much Dad. once again everybody this has been episode 237 of the successfully funded podcast my name is doug french thank you so much for joining us today you can learn more about what Afios is up to at afios.com. That's A-P-H-I-O-S.com. We are off next week because of Memorial Day weekend, but we will see you once again on June 7th. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Yeah, what I was thinking of doing yeah. a tweet today of is that I think Elon Musk is an alien. Oh, you think so? <laughs> yeah. So he'll be the he'll be the the heavy in Men in Black Four. <laughs> no intent to slander or lie. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a compliment actually. He's out earthly, you know. He's extraordinary. He wants to go back to Mars. What the hell? Who wants to go to Mars except an alien? <laughs> <laughs>